This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. It is my great honor to welcome Graham Harmon, Nikki Young, and John Cogburn to the program today to discuss The Graham Harmon Reader, published by Zero Books in 2023. Nikki Young is a lecturer of philosophy at the University of Malta. His areas of interest include 20th and 21st century continental philosophy, phenomenology, aesthetics, deconstruction, as well as the various forms of new realism and new materialism out there today. John Cogburn is a professor at Louisiana State University, and he is the author of Garcian Meditations. Graham Harmon is distinguished professor of philosophy at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, also known as SciArc, in Los Angeles. He is the author of more than 20 books, and most recently, a book published with Christopher Whitmore entitled Objects Untimely. Graham, John, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Howdy. Thanks. So this first question is for Nikki and John. Why did you put this reader together? Oh, uh, shall you start, John, or shall I? You could want to start. Okay, so actually, uh, John and I were uh, were uh, online friends uh, for a while, and uh, I was casually conversing with him uh, one time, and I said, "Oh, you know, Graham has such a big body of work right now, and there are so many kind of uh, essays and, uh, and 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 books all over the place. That it would be great if there were some kind of place where all this comes together." And of course, uh, John agreed, and uh, and uh, we we went on to uh, speak to Graham about it. That's as far as I can remember. I don't know if you want to uh, chime in. Yeah, maybe best remember. I, th- I mean, it was during the sort of COVID lockdowns. Yeah. The best thing about that is I became like internet friends with Zoom with people that I sort of done it on Facebook and some, and so we became friends. Uh, Nikki and I during that. I think we had done sort of like, there's a thing academics do this sort of like fantasy football where you try to design the perfect department. Hmm. Graham was always the like, in our perfect fantasy football department, um, Graham was the guy. But then we started thinking about like, uh, we designed a fantasy football reader of uh, Graham's essays. Weirdly, it morphed into that. I don't, how did we get from the the fantasy football reader to the actuality? That's, 
I think we, we sort of had, we would do it someday and we said, well, we better ask Graham because it's, you know, it's him and it, it's his, so then something was zero, like, like maybe this would actually be possible. I think it was Nikki who contacted me and I said, well, it's very nice of you guys to think of that, but maybe we're a few years away from that. But then uh, a couple of weeks later, Tarek Goddard at zero suggested the same thing. And then I said, all right, that's two, two independent sources suggest or three actually. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it, but only if uh, John and Nikki can be the editors because it was their idea. And Zero agreed. Yeah, so a lot of propitious stuff. So it was a dream cooker, actually, yeah, for being Nikki. But one of my favorite books as an undergraduate was the Marx Angles Reader. And Nikki and I talked about this because you could, like, um, there's at least a period of the 80s where you could take a class, learn that book, and actually contribute to this kind of scholarship that evolved, you know, Marxism in a, in a, in a good way. Yeah, it actually, we talked about this, and, you know, to, I think that um, we wanted to accomplish a similar thing with respect to Harmon's work. Um, you know, philosophers, it's like it could be intimidating, but we never felt that way about Harmon, and we, and we, we think we've, we've done it, actually. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I think we also wanted a place where there could be a systematic kind of view of uh, Graham's work. So, uh, you know, the book is divided into sections which deal with different areas. Uh, some of the areas are, of course, uh, well-known, like the fourfold and object-oriented ontology and so forth. But just a very few people might come across, for example, uh, the epistemology and the philosophy of mind of Tripolo. And we thought that this would be a great idea to have these sections incorporated into, into a reader, you know, where you could have a comprehensive view of Tripolo. Yeah, you divided the book into seven sections, right? Could we go through those seven sections? So the, the first one is anti-mining and the return to metaphysics. What's, what's generally the idea of this section? So, so basically, um, uh, in, in, in object-oriented ontology, there are uh, basically, you can see object-oriented ontology as beginning with, with the critique of various forms of reductionism. Now, reductionism is generally understood as a kind of philosophy that tends to reduce things downwards. But the triple O, there are two movements actually of reduction. One can either reduce something downwards to its parts or upwards to its effects and relations. And basically that first uh, section deals with this, uh, with, with basically papers, uh, essays and, and chapters of books, which, um, uh, which uh, provide a, a comprehensive critique of these uh, ways of, of, of rejecting objects in favor on their parts or relations. It's part of what's so fascinating about optic ontology because um, undermining and overmining are, are with an astonishing number of debates. They're the sort of two teams that are both equally irritating. Yeah. It, it, so you get Graham's beautiful in this and we've observed it. They said there with, uh, you know, um, how once you have this lens, you can t sort of tell a weak history of philosophy, but also look at contemporary culture in, um, in a sort of different way. You know, the, the sort of reductionists tend to be the scientific you know, reductionist. And there are, there are people, there are big names, so I won't name here, who uh, think that because Graham believes in metaphysics that he's a scientific realist. And so you just think that like objectivity has to be, um, we're not saying that science is BS or anything, but that science is the whole story would be the, the scientific reductionist. But that's undermining that everything that can be said that's meaningful in some way reduces to, you know, movements of particles in the void. Graham's insight, one of his central insights, is that um, people that are fighting that kind of undermining 
commit the same sin, they're reducing to relations. So in the in the so-called science wars, you know, oh, well, we made these decisions scientifically because this was going on in the culture, which is often true. But if you push that far enough, then like everything is culture or everything is just individual. This is old stuff from the German idealists like Novalis thought he lived in the matrix or something. But um, so it's, it's a, um, this is, I think the place to be is to reject both undermining and overmining. But then, but then what are you doing um, when you yourself are explaining things? That's, you know, that's where the game is in part now too. Anyway, Graham, so we're speaking for you. Well, that's fine. I, I often think of Dennett as a great example of a dual minor undermines and overmines simultaneously in the sense that for Dennett, what is mind? It's the neural underpinnings plus the outward behavior. And that's all there really is with consciousness. There's nothing intrinsic. There's nothing in between those two poles. But it, it becomes a hot potato where everything's reduced to everything else and nothing really exists in particular. Yeah, maybe maybe you could mention uh, Daniel Dennett on wine tasting here. Sure. I, I mentioned that in a lot of my um, uh, lectures, but it's in his essay uh, article, Quining Qualia, which is, you know, it's as clear as everything by Dennett is. I enjoy rereading it from time to time. But he, um, in that article, he's taking very much the undermining approach. He seems to think that wine tasting could be done uh, by a machine, simply spitting out chemical formulae. And he mocks the language of wine tasters. He says, ah, oh, a flamboyant and velvety pinot, but lacking in stamina. And so in order to get away from that kind of pretentious language, he reduces the wine downward instead to chemical formulae. And my response to that is, uh, the humanities do run the risk of pretentious language. That's our professional risk. You're not usually going to find pretentious scientists. You might find arrogant or narrow-minded scientists from time to time of you. The pretension is going to be found in the humanities precisely because we have to use figurative language uh, to get at the object of our study, unless we just want to take a total relational approach and simply say that a thing is what it does. And I don't take that uh, uh, position lightly because Bruno Latour, my late friend and wonderful thinker, uh, believes that as well. Latour is what I would call an overminer for all his contributions. An actor is what it does. An actor is whatever it transforms, modifies, perturbs, or creates. And that has some roots in pragmatism. And Latour used to jokingly call himself the only French pragmatist, which may have been true at one point. It's also It also has roots in Whitehead's, the great relational metaphysician uh, for whom an actual entity is its prehensions, its relations to other things. And this leads to certain problems, uh, going all the way back to what Aristotle noticed in the metaphysics about the Megarians, who claim that someone's a house builder only if they're building a house in this very moment which leads to all sorts of problems, such as the difference between me and a sleeping master house builder disappears because neither of us is building a house right now. And so this leads Aristotle to introduce his concept of potentiality. And I've, I've got certain problems with potentiality, but it's at least an important step in the right direction. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting point about Dennett. Um, you get a deconstruction of Dennett there because the argument of quite equalia is that basically the consciousness is relational. So you, you brush your teeth after drinking orange juice, or is it the other way around? You know, this, is the flavor different, or, or or like you drink beer and you the first time you drink it, it tastes terrible to you and you hate it. Later on, you like it. Has the flavor changed, or is the flavor the same and you like that flavor now? So he's showing that qualia, and it's the same thing in consciousness explained with with memory versus focus. The the very first chapter of that he's showing these things are intrinsically relational, 
but he's assuming because of that, it's BS because everything must be undermined. But then Arma comes along and points at what he just said, like uh, in its own instrumentalism about belief is the classic overmining move. Mm-hmm. But then in himself, you know, there's maybe a path for an oh, dead it, but you'd have to do some violence to the to the thing. I mean, you know, so. he's, the, he's the best phenomenologist in analytic philosophy, but he doesn't believe in phenomenology, so he's got to mess up, you know. But it's it's what you see. I'm just trying to illustrate, like, well, once you take this the Harmanian lens and read some of this analytic philosophy, you get ideas you never would have got before, which is by background analytic philosophy part of what drew me to to Harman. So that's just an example, I think, right there. You know, and that's also why knowing John has been so good for me because he often rephrases my ideas in analytic language in ways I hadn't thought of, and that allows me to see the whole thing differently. Yeah, it, it, that. So I'm glad that's not irritating or too irritating. <laughs> so the the second section is is called the fourfold object, which I will leave for listeners to go check out by themselves because I think that is. Uh, quite a challenge to put into uh, into discursive language without uh, diagrams and things of that sort. The third section is indirect causation, and if listeners are interested, they can go back and listen to my interview with Graham on his book Skirmishes, where we talked quite a bit about vicarious causation. The fourth section is aesthetics as first philosophy. Maybe we could talk about aesthetics as first philosophy for a little bit. What does that mean? And you chose four of I have to say four of my probably favorite articles from Graham. I'd be interested in hearing why you chose these four out of all of his work on aesthetics. I think you, uh, you, you segued in in a really nice way because you said it's hard to put, it's hard to put these in discursive language and something that I think connects the anti-mining and aesthetics is uh, Graham's ideas that there's a, um, the, the, the problem is like, how, how do we get, if, if undermining and overmining and dual mining are always reducing and killing the object, how do we get to the object? Because if literal language always tends to undermine and overmine. And so Warren Harmon's insights is that like, there's a lot of language that isn't literal. It's metaphorical. And his understanding of metaphor, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, and, um, to, um, <clears throat> is sort of the bridge for um, how uh, it, it's, it's, uh, maybe a, a paradigm instance of how we we get at reality. So, so one of the interesting things to read um, is one way to characterize what Harman's doing. I think is via I'll pitch this to to Harman is the idea that metaphysics, as traditionally understood, commits a version of the paraphrastic fallacy that the new critics talked about. And so the question is how to do metaphysics without committing the paraphrastic fallacy. And so metaphysics becomes a kind of poetry, which doesn't mean we have to start writing like poets. Philosophers tend to be bad poets. We were doing poetry all along, right? But everything shifts. And so that's the connection between the critique of undermining and overmining and I, why aesthetics is first philosophy. But you articulated that. It's hard to put these things discursively. It is. That's the that's the thing to be explained. So, so Arben, if, if the... I, I think a paraphrastic fallacy is maybe a way to buzz into that. I think there's something interesting about aesthetics vis-a-vis uh, precisely what um, what uh, is contained in the previous section in direct causation, because one of the one of the major uh, mistakes uh, people t- tend to make when it comes to triple O 
is that they tend to assume that objects are vacuum sealed in the sense of not interacting at all. Whereas, um, uh, of course, Triple uh, O does speak about uh, interactions and causation. It's just that this mode of interaction must be indirect rather than direct. So, um, uh, and it's it's in the sense that aesthetic styles do do what we've said before because if we understand the relations as indirect, then we need to bring aesthetics into the in, into the game necessarily. So, when we talk about aesthetics in triple we mean it in in two senses. I, 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 the way I understand it, at least, there's aesthetics in the classical sense, you know, of uh, a theory of uh, beauty, of senses of art, etc. And, and there's also a, a narrower sense of aesthetics in triple meaning which which will mean two things. The first the first is related to indirect causation, which is which basically implies that because objects cannot indirect interact directly, the the, the, the impetus which allows which allows for contact between two objects must first of all be aesthetic. It must be related to the facade of objects rather than its interior being. And the, the second the second aspect of aesthetic, of course. In triple is the separation between an object and its qualities. Again, as you said, it would take too, too far, too long to explain all of this in, a, in, in this short time frame. I, I was going on about the critique of literalism. How do you connect these two things up to the critique of literalism, uh, Mickey? Because I would think of aesthetics in terms of like a, um, you know, a work of fiction or a work of poetry as a as a yeah. way that tells us something about the world in non-literal language. Yeah, but that's a sense of aesthetic, and I know that's the what you're privileging with the sense of aesthetics. Um, how how would you tie these two senses of aesthetics to the the I, quantum metaphor? I, I guess it, indirect causation, the two come together. I think there are two senses of aesthetics in triple law. One of them is the narrower aesthetics, uh, the narrower sense, and the other one is the broader sense. Mm. Now, the broader sense is 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 broadly related to mechanisms of causation. And the narrower sense is related to aesthetics as it's classically understood. Now, the interesting thing is that the two the two merge together because when it comes to metaphor, what's going on in metaphor, which is of course uh, literary language, is is the same process that's going on in the case of vicarious causation. So, in vicarious causation, you have two objects interacting directly with the third object acting as both a mediator and a medium. Again, I'm going through all this in a kind of hurry because because uh, it's 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 complex and technical to explain in in a, in a short time. But uh, as I said, much like in vicarious causation or indirect causation, you have two objects interacting directly, mediated by a third. Whereas in metaphor, you have exactly the metaphor as a whole acting as a conduit for the indirect relation between, say, the cypress and the flame, and the in the classic example which Harman often provides, right? So, so, so this is the way I would connect the two, I guess. I'm glad that the critique of literalism has come up because what often happens with people who either haven't read Triple O works or haven't read enough of it uh, is that they they focus on this word withdrawal, the term that I borrowed from Heidegger, but which also applies in the case of Kant's thing in itself, for instance, this idea that there's a reality to which we cannot gain direct access. And people obsess over that point. And of course, there are numerous rejoinders to the thing in itself already, whether from the German idealist tradition or the phenomenological tradition or any other anti-realist continental trend. But that's in some ways not really the core of triple O. What triple O is really about is the difference between objects and their own qualities. 
And so what it really amounts to, the critique of literalism is really a critique of the Hume. And we know that analytic philosophy has deep Humean presuppositions in many cases, but I've got Deleuze's first book out on my coffee table right now, and that's a book on Hume. And so this critique of substance is a kind of uh, assumption that goes across both traditions. And uh, I'm trying to restore it and also restore it on two different levels. Uh, in some sense, Triple O is very Aristotelian. I see Triple O as simply the latest in a lineage that goes from Aristotle through Aquinas, through Leibniz, uh, and bringing it back uh, in more contemporary form in Triple O, but also in Husserl. People overlook the weird similarities between Husserl and, and uh, Aristotle in the sense that they're both concerned with the difference between an object and its accidents, an object and its qualities. It's just that for Husserl, um, he thinks it's absurd to speak about anything existing that would not potentially be the correlate of some intentional act. And so for that reason, I would call him an idealist. By my definition of idealist, Husserl qualifies. Whereas uh, Aristotle, kind of the other direction, he seems a little more confident that the world we're talking about is the world itself. Uh, and so Triple O, in a way, it's like Aristotle with uh, taking a lot of modern philosophies not skepticism, but modern philosophy's concerns about being able to get at the real on board. One of the things, Dickie and I, we talk about philosophy of mind a lot uh, and how it all relates to it. And this, I taught a class on um, consciousness. There's a big brick of the book. I can't remember who wrote the book uh, called Theories of Consciousness or something. Um, I mean, it's great. Um, it's it was in Blackmore? Yeah, the Blackmore Charles Kianko. Yeah. yeah, fantastic book. But like, oh, what they show in that book is no theory of consciousness works. Everything that's lauded in the popular press about where we've localized this in the brain, there's really like, you have to back up and make a lot of caveats to never get told. And one of the things that Nikki and I realized is that like, all of these theories of consciousness are human. They, they somehow from the physical, try to get a set of qualities and then construct the um, object. And Husserl comes along and says, like, that's not what it's like phenomenologically. What they all do is say, oh, this happens subconsciously. It's so like you start to read Graham and you think maybe, um, you know, this this research program and responding to Husserl by saying, like, oh, this has happened subconsciously. Um, it has a lot of problems. Um, maybe it's a more serious point. And part of what's interesting about Graham and the book is Grilla Metaphysics, sort of. No. Um, yeah. Grilla Metaphysics. A tool being is taking Heidegger seriously. Grilla metaphysics is taking Husserl seriously. I mean, Grilla metaphysics, Harman was like, let's really take this, uh, this Husserlian idea. We do not perceive a set of qualities. We don't construct an object out of a set of qualities. Let's take this seriously. And I think this is an idea that has legs that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of places to go with it. Um, so I'm just sort of like, Maybe doing the same thing I did with Dennett earlier, but yeah, it's 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 a central idea and it's an important idea that ramifies out to, um, you know, at least ninety eight percent of the analytic philosophy of mind right now, and you know, cognitive science. Like, they just can't reject this idea, so they have to say it's all subdastic, it's all subconscious, it's all, you know, and then it, yeah. So the next section, section five, is called ethics and the politics of things. What does an object-oriented ethics look like? You know, the question of ethics, because ethics, like politics, has been, and it's quite interesting vis-a-vis, -vis, if, if you want to consider it as well, in relation to the question of the animal, of course, in philosophy. 
because for a very long time, having um, a specific, you know, the, the capacity for, uh, for uh, you know, the capacity to be ethical or, or to, to enter into political alliance was for a very long time uh, treated as one of the kind of fundamental properties of, uh, of being human. And that is the way in which kind of this, kind, this definite border or boundary was drawn between that which is human and everything else. Now, uh, Triple O uh, is, 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 is very good at dismantling these kind of rigid barriers constructed between humans and everything else. Ryan Graham calls it on taxonomy. And one of the ways in which, uh, in which Graham does it is, uh, is, is by, uh, you know, by having objects suddenly enter into the realm of, of, of ethics and politics. So they are no longer seen as simply these inert um, uh, entities which just mediate human relations or which not compel us into, into ethical behavior. Uh, they, become, they become, so to speak, actors, uh, contributors to, to ethics, contributors to, to politics. Graham just mentioned Lingus, and, and, and I think this is a, 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 this, a, a, Lingus is one of the most underrated and yet important philosophers of all time. Precisely because, for example, in his book, The Imperative, right, he already shows us that, um, to, to, you know, you, you, you cannot, if you want to drink a wine bottle, the wine bottle kind of uh, gives you a, a, an imperative to, 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 to savor it properly. There is a good way and a bad way to savor it properly. So there is a sense in which um, uh, objects also issue commands, imperatives, so to speak. So, so that, that um, uh, there is much to be said about the contribution of objects to ethics, uh, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, a, a gate isn't simply a gate which mediates human relations. It, uh, it, it compels me to, to behave in such and such a manner towards it and so forth. And uh, um, uh, I, think, I think this is one of uh, Lingus's main, main contributions. Yes, that's, that's uh, ethics. Of course, an important antecedent to triple O politics, I guess, even though there are many differences between the two, you know, I referred the listeners to with materialism, where uh, Graham really fleshes out the, the differences between the two positions. But after network theory, it's an important antecedent to triple O. Because uh, Latour had realized very early in his career, actually, um, uh, if you read uh, an essays like uh, Screwing the Big Leviathan, right, that there is a sense in which nature is already political. And, and there is also a sense in which um, uh, politics, human politics, are stabilized by a lot more than human relations. A lot of objects come into the, the, the um, uh, stab political stability. Right and, and the the making of political systems, so I think these two uh, thinkers are important antecedents to Triple O, except that, of course, there are important differences, um, um, which, as I said, uh, I, I referred the thinker to the 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 the, the, the listeners to uh, to materialism for a for a for a broader uh, view of this. Um, um, because I'm again pressed for time, but uh, this is essentially to go back to the section the ethics and politics of things. Its major contribution is to show how things, right? Oh, well, not let's not use things because objects aren't things, right? In triple O, aren't necessarily things. So the way in which objects contribute to ethical and political systems, they are not simply inert 
systems, tools for at our disposal. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I would add to that that, yeah, object-oriented politics is a term Latour uses in his book, An Inquiry into Modes of Existence. And of course, he got that phrasing from me, but he was working in that direction well before I came along. Uh, if you think of modern political theory, is split basically between a left and a right, which is still the political universe we all inhabit. You get a kind of gut sense of how far left or right somebody is. And maybe there are some exotic cases where it's hard to place somebody on either. But what the left and the right politically boil down to in modern political theory is... What do you think about human nature? Are humans naturally ferocious and in need of violent controls to prevent themselves from unleashing all of our horrible instincts? Or are humans naturally good and corrupted by society or oppressed by some corrupt class that takes advantage of them? And that's what our political debate has been about for centuries. And uh, Graeber and Wengro wrote their famous bestseller, one of everything. Yeah, I've got uh, an article coming out in the next few days, a critical review of that book. And the book is refreshing in many ways, but uh, and they overlap with my view on one point, which is that they say, let's not stay stuck in this Hobbes versus Rousseau alternative. So they see the problem. But then the answer they give is humans aren't naturally good or naturally evil. Humans are naturally imaginative and experimental. So humans can try different forms of governments and different seasons of the year. Certain civilizations have played around with kings and then played with a democratic government. And that's interesting. It allows you to look at history differently. However, it's coming very much out of this um, sentiment on the left these days that the problem with capitalism is that it's too unimaginative, right? This beginning with Jameson, supposedly Jameson's statement that uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Uh, In in the reader, I wrote a critique of Catherine Malibu's similar arguments uh, where she's Positing the human subject as a kind of anarchic legislator who just posits a new political form, uh, irrespective of the background conditions of it. And so that that's very much a, a current in continental political thought right now. Yeah, it just seems like the default hypothesis in continental philosophy these days is that it's oppressive unless you think the human simply makes a free decision about what kind of political orders to have. Uh, that any attempt to bring in constraints, you are somehow bending to uh, right-wing pressures of some sort. That, that's where the continental left is right now. Uh, and it's not just Malibu and Graeber and Wengro. My old friend Peter Hallwards also uh, has a lot invested in voluntarism, the politics of the will. Uh, and, you know, Badiou, there are certainly elements in there. Uh, Badiou often acts as if political constraints don't matter. He doesn't even talk much about economics, which Zizek has criticized him for. And I talked about... Uh, I lived through the Egyptian Revolution, and it was an exhilarating time. And yet the Egyptian Revolution, I would say, pretty obviously failed. Um, Not only did they come out of it with a military dictatorship, it's a much more brutal one than they had under Mubarak, uh, to such an extent that most of my former students are putting nostalgic posts about Mubarak up. I saw one the other day that had Mubarak in a tennis outfit with a racket, and it said, back then we didn't even know what a central bank was. So there's a lot of nostalgia 
uh, from Mubarak, at least among certain classes of Egyptians. Well, I think that's a case where, uh, I hate to use the phrase deep state because that's misused by the American right now, but you have a deep state in Egypt, you have the army which controls huge sectors of the economy, and that obviously wasn't addressed at all by the revolution. And so in that sense, I think the revolution was destined to fail. Now, um, uh, the problem is when you start talking about constraints of reality in politics, that that scans as right wing to some people. So for instance, if I say geography has to be considered in the interpretation of political history, that sounds like uh, insufficiently creative, insufficiently liberated from the constraints of the worlds. Uh, and a lot of times those arguments are used by people on the political right, or at least on the politically hardcore realist side of the spectrum, uh, who will say things like, um, it's no wonder Putin wants to keep Ukraine. It's a dangerous invasion route. It's only 200 miles from Moscow. These are often made, these claims about geographical aspects of, of politics and history are often made in order to defend a less than pleasant status quo and to defend something sub-idealist in politics. We, there are limits on what we can do because of uh, the conditions in play. But I think Latour shows a way in which uh, we can do this in a new way. Uh, for Latour, of course, climate politics is the surest road to an object-oriented politics because things now like methane and CO2 are obviously political actors. And... Um, uh, I don't think you get very far in discussing climate change if you just say humans created it, therefore it's a human problem, therefore we need to consider climate change as a form of textuality. I've actually received critiques of that sort. No, you can't do that. There are, there are uh, real constraints in the world on political uh, possibilities, and also inanimate objects are usually what stabilize the political sphere in the first place. So I, I often go back to a wonderful article that Latour co-authored with the primatologist Shirley Strum, where they went and observed baboons together. And what they noticed was that baboons are actually more social than humans are in the sense that baboons are constantly watching each other to see if the social order has changed, which baboons are flirting, which, was other one, which ones are massaging or feeding the other ones. And we don't normally have to do this as humans. When we wake up in the morning, we're pretty secure in our identity most of the time, except in rare moments of crisis. I wake up in the morning, I know I'm married. I know about how much money I have in the bank account. I know that I'm an author of books that people on podcasts want to hear. I know that I live in Los Angeles, which has a reasonably stable government, uh, and so on and so forth. So all of these things are inanimate objects that allow humans to uh, de-socialize in a way. And that allows certain possibilities because it allows us not to worry about certain basic conditions of existence. And so we need to look a lot more at this. And generally speaking, um, big political changes come from non-human objects. So the most recent one in the U.S., of course, is social media and what it did to polarize the American electorate. Uh, the fact that on social media, you're only going to see things that validate your prejudices. Um, the fact I just read an article right before this meeting about how Colleges and universities in the U.S. are becoming either red or blue. People don't want to go to higher education that's of the other side of the political spectrum. Um, I don't think my wife wants to live in any state other than California in the U.S. now. So even if, if I were offered a job uh, in a red state or even a borderline state, it might be hard for me to persuade my wife we should move, right? Because California is, for someone like me, politically the best place to be in the United States right now. 
So society is getting really polarized, and you can pin a lot of that both on social media and on Fox News as having energized a previously fairly apolitical segment of the population, the white working class, which became politicized in the Fox News way from the maybe the nineties on late nineties onward. And now we're in a different country from my childhood, or even from the Clinton era. Uh, it's no longer the same place. Now I think AI is the next one coming down the pipe. It's already changed academic life. Um, one one of my colleagues had twenty one Chad GPT plagiarism incidents in the fall semester. Yeah, and because it was released in November, just in time for for fall semester final papers, and so we met about that. And since SciArc is a school that likes to adapt to technology rather than bemoaning it. Uh, we decided we're going to work with it rather than against it. And so the way I'm doing that is I'm requiring my students, I give they choose a paper prompt out of several, and then they're supposed to ask Chat GPT to answer the prompt and paste that at the front of their paper. And then they're supposed to argue with Chat GPT about what it missed, what its deficiencies are, because uh, we're going to have to work with the technology and, and human AI hybrids are probably the wave of the next few decades. Maybe at some hypothetical point, we will be replaced but that's still over the horizon, I think. I think for now, we're going to have to find ways to work with it productively. Anyway, I just mentioned that because that's another political thing that's going to happen. The amount of disinformation, but also the amount of access to information. Uh, we were joking before the show about being able to go in and say, do a rap battle between... I did it. I asked it to do a rap battle between Alfonso Lingus and John Searle, and in 10 seconds, it came up with a fairly plausible one. Who would have ever thought of such a concept if not for, for Chad GPT? And that in itself may be trivial, but I've I've learned about myself from asking ChatGPT questions about myself. Like compare Graham Harmon's work to Nicholas Luman's, and it comes up with a fairly plausible uh, account. Sometimes it gets basic facts wrong. That still needs to be fixed. It, it told my student I invented a, invented a concept called Meta Horizons Worlds, which I've never even heard of. That I invented it. So it's, yeah, there's stuff. What's that? It just makes up stuff. They call it the problem of hallucination. Oh. That's going to be very hard to fix, but people make up stuff too. So I don't know. That's true. Yeah. And it, it expresses equal confidence, whether it knows what it's talking about or has no idea what it's talking about. But I found it to be more often right than wrong. There's a beautiful segue into uh, the sixth section of the book, which is on epistemology and mind. So maybe now we can, we can pivot into this next section which starts off with one of my favorite lectures of Graham's, which is, I am also of the opinion that materialism must be destroyed. That was a response to the uh, book of James Ladyman and Don Ross, Everything Must Go, which is a work of analytic philosophy, a very scientistic work, and they use that word themselves to describe themselves, scientistic, in the sense that they believe that quantum theory and Darwinian evolutionary theory should dictate what philosophy says about certain topics. And uh, I made a case against that. One of the aspects of Ladyman and Ross's position is that they are extremely critical of the idea of individual entities. And I go through and talk about some of the problems with that. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems with all such theories, in their case, it's that the world is a mathematical structure. And uh, individual entities for them are somehow, they call them real patterns using Dennett's term, but really those things are real only if there's a human observer who is trying to make a science about them. So Ladyman and Ross uh, claim that tra traffic jams are a real pattern. Traffic jams actually exist, but they only exist in correlation with a human scientist who is trying to make a science of traffic jams. And there are all kinds of problems with this. For one thing, if, if the world is simply a unified mathematical structure, how is the human scientist different enough from that structure to do sciences in the first place? 
So these supposed monisms of a world that's just one before humans carve it up have the problem that they also accept the human as something distinct from the world in the first place. Parmenides runs into the same problem way back in pre-Socratic philosophy. On the one hand, being is one. On the other, there's also doxa and illusion and opinion and mistakes which are created by the minds. Well, if everything's one, why is there this thing called mind if it's different enough from the one? Uh, so you've already got at least a dualism. So Ladyman and Ross actually fall into a pretty old tradition. You can find not only in Parmenides or in Anaxagoras in pre-Socratic times, also in the early Levinas and in some works of Jean-Luc Nancy, where the world itself is a lump and then humans break it up into pieces through their conscious activity. I, I find a lot of that in Heidegger as well. And the biggest problem with that philosophically for me is it doesn't allow you to talk about object-object interactions outside of human access, which to me is the key problem that prevents us from getting outside of the, the Kantian Valley in which philosophy has been operating for a couple of centuries. It's, uh, I think it's also worth mentioning in that section, uh, the essay Zero Person and the Psyche, um, uh, because, because it's, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. it's really a, a wonderful essay. Um, uh, which uh, deals with um, uh, deals partly with uh, with with David Chalmers's work, but also um, um, what's especially interesting about it, they say, is that um, uh, there is a continuity between the critique of Dennett as a dual minor and this idea of the of the zero person, because um, uh, generally when people um, discuss the philosophy of mind. They are generally thinking either in terms of um, uh, behavioral traits and so forth, outward relational traits, or in terms of the neuroscientific underpinnings. And the kind of concept of a zero person just is precisely intended to capture this kind of this um, uh, this uh, mistaken view when it comes to the first person and third person perspectives. Of course, for some people, the first-person perspective is ineliminable, so that we need it. But for others, you know, they say, no, this first-person perspective is really um, a hornswoggle problem, right, as as, as Patricia Churchill have called it, and, uh, and we can easily refer to neuroscience if we want to get things done. Well, um, uh, zero person just highlights the fact that it's not, it's, it's neither the first person nor the third person, but it's it's also not something in between that would give us access to what the mind is, and I just thought that uh, that is a, a, an important essay to mention um, uh, in this in this section. The standard view is really goofy. I mean, um, like Anil Seth is like everything's hallucination. Your brain constructs it, but if everything's hallucination, so is science. So it just it, philosophers have made this kind of Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell did. Um, Plantinga, lots of, you know, C.S. Lewis, um, John McDowell, um, make this kind of, you know, way that like, uh, you know, scientism requires a lot of normative structure, you know, to be able to do science in the first place. And um, so it's it's very unstable. You know, everything can't be a hallucination. And then your explanation of why it's hallucination is because scientism is true. And so this is this is just a, gaping thing like there's a million ted talks where people make this mistake uh and i, I think that you know as, as someone who dabbles in philosophy of mind and nikki one of the reasons we're so interested in graham's work is because the only i think he's the only significant philosopher that's 
um, sensitive to this um, in, in, in the appropriate way. And I think that connects, you know, both of these essays, the uh, zero person in the psyche, the trails must be destroyed. But Graham, what do, you do? do you have anything on the zero person to add to the, to, it's a banger essay, I'm sorry, it's in here. Yeah, I've, I've always been happy with that essay and uh, it was very fun to write. It was grueling to write, but I, it, I wrote it in the immediate aftermath of having read Chalmers for the first time. And I was powerfully affected by Chalmers' book. And uh, I agreed with much of what he had to say. I simply uh, added the point that I didn't think the part-whole relation is any simpler in the case of inanimate objects than it is in the case of the human mind. So Chalmers is kind of a consciousness exceptionalist. Uh, conscious, consciousness and I think he says indexicals are the two non-reducible things. It's been a while since I read Chalmers. But uh, I said, no, actually, uh, uh, any any emergent phenomenon is going to be just as difficult to explain. It was not, not as difficult to explain, but difficult to account for in ontological terms. The fact that you can explain how water arises out of HT, H2O does not mean that uh, H2O is, uh, that water simply is H2O, right? That emergence is a real thing. And this means that the world is made up of many different levels. And this is one of the reasons that reduction is not uh, sustainable as a global philosophical method. And that includes upward reduction. People usually fret about downward reduction. Upward reduction is even more dangerous in some ways, such as Dennett's view that behavior is the only thing that exists other than neural subcomponents of consciousness. I mean, this is where like an analytic philosopher will say, oh, it's super venient, but that's a mess. I mean, Hillary Putnam, I saw him, he was like, you know, the, it's supposed to, exp the, you're supposed to explain like a ontological dependence of emergence in terms of uh, the supervenience bit relation. You know, anything that's different at the level of water, there has to be a difference at the level of the molecules. That's how we're going to articulate the dependence. Putnam showed that like, actually the, in many cases, if you define supervenience uh, formally that way, it works in the opposite direction. The smaller stuff is supervenient on the bigger stuff. You haven't explained um, this notion of emergence or ontological dependence. I mean, there's there's no like set of logical tricks that somebody can pull up um, from from you know doing a bit of logic that's gonna gonna solve this stuff. I I, I recently emailed John about something actually in relation to this because. I did the thing that in uh, you know in 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 our contemporary world in philosophy, there are effectively two two kinds of ways of looking at not only the mind but also at at, at individual things. But you can either I I don't know if you remember this, me and John. Um, uh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and I think that the problem is the problem is you know, how, to what extent should we take the internal. Uh, elements, the interiority of something seriously, right? So, so there are people um, like, uh, say, uh, to give a classical example, people like Descartes and Husserl who take this um, uh, this uh, interiority this this, in, uh, this um, uh, interiority so seriously that they they believe it's uh, it's an incontrovertible fact. We must start with that. And on the other hand, we have people who simply deny it in favor of something like a relation or uh, or uh, or a behavior or something like this. So I think it's it's a really important question, um, uh, the question of uh, what, it, is there an interiority to something and, and what does this consist of? 
to what extent must it, should it have should it have uh, should it be given uh, uh, importance in 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 ontology and metaphysics? And I think a lot, a lot, you know, I think the reason, the the primary reason why, well, no, not maybe not the primary one because there are a number, but one of the main reasons why I was especially attracted to Tripolo is that it takes it takes interiority seriously. Um, uh, and, and and does a very good job at describing what it might be like, uh, you know, um, uh, to 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 inhabit the interior of uh, of of some entity without reducing it uh, down to kind of um, uh, a speculation or whatnot and whatnot. So so I I think this is a very important uh, um, uh, question. This question of what what something is independently of its relations and parts. And you get this, some like like Chalmers, later Chalmers is good and Philip Goff is good. Yeah. And, uh, like, uh, but they, so what's distinctive of consciousness is that it is a categorical nature and scientific explanation is always causal and dispositional. So that's where they say like, oh, you can't reduce consciousness to, um, to science. And then, then they suggest panpsychism, maybe everything's conscious. Um, but when you take the zero person of the psyche article seriously, they're like, wait a minute, that was a that was a problem with that. That is a problem, um, but it doesn't demarcate consciousness from non-consciousness. What does that do to the panpsychism debate, which Harmon is close to in various ways? Um, this article is a, a key one in articulating. Um, yeah, but I think there's another issue that, uh, that ties us to the ethics that was is still being worked out, and there's. Um, there's a sort of teleological issue that comes up with consciousness that gets reduced to, to people. So Nikki mentioned earlier, uh, Alfonso Lingus on the, um, on the imperative. So, so, so with Heidegger, um, you've got, you know, th we live in this relational world where you use the pencil in order to write something, you write something in order to do this. And this is in order, you know, for one of a nail, the horse, the kingdom is lost. But for him, all these in order to relationships tied to the, for the sake of which relationship, and, you know, we have these moments in philosophy where, like, something opens up. And for one of them, for me, was, like, uh, Graham's tool being, where he, he gets with Heidegger for the, for the sake of which and critiques it. And that's, that's so the, for the sake of which is where this reduction upward to society, all normativity goes. You know, the, the, everything that you have to do is just sort of what's been determined by society and language at this point in the history of being. Um, that's a reduction. That's just making society magic, actually. You know, it's just making society magic. Um, Robert Branham does that in analytic philosophy. Um, and so, you know, how, how much... Uh, Alistair McIntyre says that at the end of After Virtue, we need an account of teleology that doesn't rest on Aristotle's um, metaphysical biology. Um, I think that's still sort of out there. My intuition is that object-oriented ontology is going to be the place to approach that. Um, I think that's an issue too with um, this. This is my, you know, when I started writing an email back to you, Vicky, on that email, um, I think that when we look at Goff, um, talking about Goff and Chalmers, they neglect this normative aspect of of consciousness and that that's, um, but again, I don't want to then say like, oh, this is some special facet of the humans. So I then want to take the, the zero point perspective with respect to that. And I think that what's needed is putting together, uh, for me at least, 
really section five and section six of this anthology, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. just to go back, like I said, when we put this together, we want it to be that if someone reads this, you can contribute to the literature on OO. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think this is an example where the, the two kind of come together. Look, look. One of many, many. But I, I, it, and I think this is also a great thing about, about the reader because actually every section we've designed this, I remember specifically to be this way. Every section would segue very nicely into the next one, you know. This is this is the way we've designed it to be because, um, uh, you know, when you, look, the problem is there are very few few system builders left in philosophy, but, uh, or at least under recently now they seem to be on the increase, you know. They, but but the thing is, you know, so uh, there is a sense in which Triple um, uh, 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 is is really one very big system which includes more than simply you know speculating on the nature of objects. And I think uh, this is why kind of like the, the sections tie together uh, so nicely, or rather that one segues into the other. And I think a, a, a job we might have in the future, John and I, I mean, is to, is to really synthesize these, uh, these, these sections into a coherent and compressed whole. Um, so that each of these problems, which, which feed into one another, tie, tie, tie with one another, can be, can be really articulated in the best possible way. It's just like the German idealist. Every one of them was completing Kant's system. <laughs> like, that's how you respond to a systematic philosopher, right? That's, you know, it's necessarily complete. It has to be, or else it, you know. Yeah. yeah. But you're going to really want to complete it. Yeah. So me and Nikki, yeah, we're going to do it. And so I think that's a perfect segue uh, into the final question that I have. I should mention there's also a seventh section to the book of previously unpublished material. So um, we're not going to reveal that for listeners. So you're going to have to check out the book. Uh, There is a ritual on the New Books Network, and that is to end the interview by asking what you are working on now. So my question for all three of you is, what are you working on now? Um, Wait. I'm working on two specific things. Uh, one of them is to try and figure out. Well, I'm working on the question of the animal, really. Um, uh, you know, on the on the ontological, ethical, and po- uh, primarily ontological, but also the ethical, political status of animals. And also, I'm trying to tie Trupano uh, to the work of uh, Matthew Kavarko, who has written a lot about uh, about animals, and especially about the ontology of the animal in in philosophy. I'm uh, I'm getting uh, yeah I'm I'm I'm, I'm polishing up a, a, a paper on that at the moment. Another thing uh, I'm working on is actually a book on panpsychism with uh, with with John, where we're really trying to figure out um, all all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, earlier, whether it be uh, consciousness, the philosophy of mind, um, uh, and precisely we're interested in what uh, to what extent two things. To what extent is triple uh, 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 To what extent is it is it compatible with panpsychism? To what extent is it a panpsychism or is it not? And all this, and uh, and to basically push the triple system further through this analysis of of panpsychism. And I'm uh, I'm got my fingers in a few parts. There's uh, um, so Tristan Garcia has a trilogy of philosophical books, and I'm helping. Uh, Christopher and Abby Ray Alexander translate the final book in this trilogy, which uh, will come out with uh, an Edinburgh in the um, in the Speculative Realism series. The Graham uh, Graham is a series editor for the thing Nikki described. I'm excited. I'm also like uh, this is weird. 
um, a book on uh, professional wrestling and Donald Trump. I'm doing it with my friend Neil Abair, who's a performance studies. And we're actually using object-oriented ontology in it because the, the, the book's called Kayfabe Nation. Kayfabe is the wrestling word for fake. Um, Carney Pig Latin. But if everybody's in on the secret, what happens? And we think to some extent that explains a lot of uh, reality. And so grabs this critique of truth politics and these kind of things um, come up, like what is the role of truth with a narrative that was undermined? Um, so working on that. And then with uh, Michael Ardeline, um, we're um, writing a book on uh, H.P. Lovecraft. And that's uh, that's motivated strongly by uh, Graham's uh, Weird Realism, uh, Realism book. Um, that's that's sort of, those are, those, are, those are the big three big things now. As for me, um, I'm trying to catch up on some overdue projects, but the, the new one on my horizon is it's going to be another architecture book. I'm still employed by an architecture school and I published Architecture and Objects uh, last summer. But now I'm going to focus on a specific important figure in architecture. I don't want to reveal who it is yet, but uh, it's going to be an in-depth study of one particular architect. Very exciting. And hopefully I can have all three of you back on the program. Sure. Maybe passed on you both. The book is The Graham Harmon Reader, published in 2023 with zero books. Graham Harmon, Nikki Young, John Cogburn, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having us, Alan. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.